following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Um, we're continuing on in this book of Ecclesiastes, this series called Life Under the Sun, and the text that we want to look at this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, and going through chapter 6, verse 9. But for the scripture reading, I just want to look at chapter 5, verses 10 to 20, and then I'll reference uh, chapter 6 as we go through the message, uh, because the passage is a bit long. And so in Ecclesiastes 5, starting in verse 10, it reads, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owners, owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Amen. Shall we pray? God, at times we find the words of the preacher difficult to understand, and uh, even at times what seems to be contrary to the rest of the teaching of Scripture. And so what we ask for you is the wisdom that we need to understand his words, to understand the journey that he's taken, and to understand ultimately the insights that he's gained, what it means to live in this life, walking with you and worshiping you. And so we surrender our hearts to this teaching and ask that you would speak and breathe through your living word into our hearts that we might have a heart of understanding and a heart of obedience. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the second message that I preached in this book of Ecclesiastes, I showed you a video clip from this documentary called I Am. And if you remember back from that message, uh, that documentary was the work of a very successful Hollywood director by the name of Tom Shadiak, who essentially discovered Jim Carrey. 
uh, as a comedic actor. And he ended up having this life-shattering, life-altering experience and became nearly suicidal when he had this biking accident. And as a result of that accident, developed what's called post-concussion syndrome and was having so many horrible symptoms that he, for a time in his life, wondered if this life was even worth living. And out of that experience, Shadiak went on this journey to find life's meaning. You know, what is this all about? Uh, why is this life even worth living? And he documented aspects of this journey in this film entitled, I Am. And so today I want to show you another clip from that documentary, and then afterwards we'll go on and take a look at this passage in Ecclesiastes in light of this. As you can see, a big part of Shadiac's journey to find life's meaning centered around his material wealth. Um, he had reached the pinnacle of his career, uh, became a successful movie director in Hollywood with a net worth in the millions of dollars. Uh, mansions, not just a mansion, but mansions and estates, uh, private jets. He had it all. He had achieved, in other words, everything that society told him was the good life, would make him happy. And yet, there was this emptiness that he felt within him at the top of that mountain. And I think the truth is, anybody that goes on a journey to find life's meaning, uh, to find out what is it really all about, has to come to that point where you struggle with this issue of money. Because money has this allure of promising the good life, of promising everything that you've ever wanted, all of your hopes, all of your dreams. The answer so temptingly seems to be in money. And as you can see from Shady X Journey, this wasn't just an intellectual exercise that he was going on so he could make a documentary film. I mean, he was deeply struggling with the answers to life so that he could find out how to live. I mean, it's crazy if you think about it. He sold his multi-million dollar mansions and estates and literally moved into a motorhome, okay? I don't know how any, to this day, he still lives in a trailer park. And I don't know how many of us in this room could possibly even fathom making a downgrade in lifestyle like that. But that's what this guy did when he realized that sitting in this mansion, I feel no happier than I did before I had any of this. This painting that you see is entitled The Money Lender and His Wife. It's a work by a Flemish painter named Quentin Matsis, who lived around the same time as the great reformer Martin Luther back in the 1500s. This painting depicts a very wealthy moneylender who's preoccupied with carefully weighing his coins and his pearls and other precious treasures that he has recently acquired. But the real subject of interest is not the moneylender, but his wife. Because she is sitting next to him, and it's clear that she's trying to read a Bible or some kind of a devotional book of some kind, but she is very distracted by these coins that her husband is weighing. In essence, what Matsis is trying to do is to illustrate 
through his painting a truth that is echoed repeatedly throughout the pages of Scripture. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I've said this before when I've preached about money that I've always found it hard to, to talk about materialism uh, at the pulpit. And it's not because I'm gun-shy and it's such a sensitive topic and I'm afraid of offending you. That's not why I find it hard to preach on money. I find it hard to preach on money because the truth is that no one thinks he or she struggles with it. You know, no one thinks that they struggle with greed. In my years of pastoral ministry, no one, not one church member has ever confessed to me that they struggle with materialism. And I, I think the big part of the problem is that when it comes to materialism and greed and money, the truth is we all grade ourselves on a curve, don't we? And when it comes to greed, there's always somebody that is guiltier than us. Somebody who lives a more extravagant lifestyle. And so we all feel, the truth is, regardless of what your income is, we all feel like we're living within our means, don't we? I mean, I think that's probably the statement almost every one of us would make is, listen, I'm just living within my means, whatever that is. And so at the end of the day, despite the Bible's repeated warnings about the dangers of money, I think the truth is, none of us feel all that convicted by those passages. We, we feel like we're doing okay in that category. That, you know, when it comes to money, I, I, I have a handle on it. I'm doing okay. And so we're really forced between two choices, aren't we? Either the Bible is making a lot of noise about a subject that truthfully only applies to like 1% of us. You know, the filthy rich. Those horrible people who are living that kind of lifestyle. Or... All of us are in more denial about our struggle with the desire for money than we would care to acknowledge or to admit. It's interesting, the preacher in his journey to find the meaning of life hits this issue of materialism and money himself and wrestles with how in searching for life's meaning do I deal with this issue of money? What is the teaching, that the wisdom that I have gained from my own search. Well, in the passage, the preacher offers a couple reasons why money cannot provide the ultimate meaning that we seek in life. Find it here first in verses 11 to 12 of chapter 5. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. What he's in essence saying is that as your wealth increases, so do your obligations and trouble. In other words, more money, more headache. In essence, what he's depicturing is, you know, you acquire some wealth, and suddenly all these relatives and friends show up out of the woodwork looking for a free handout. And it says, you know, once you get more money, then suddenly there are more mouths to feed. Suddenly there's more people that show up at your doorstep looking for a handout. And so he says at the end of the day, 
you're not even the one that ends up getting to enjoy any of it. Somebody else gets to enjoy your wealth. Does anybody know who this is? Any, any sports fans out there? This, you can say it. It's, it's okay to talk. Yeah, Jerry Jones. He is the billionaire owner of the Dallas Cowboys football team. Now, what I find interesting is whenever the camera goes to Jerry Jones in a Cowboys game, when they're airing those games on national TV, he almost never looks happy to me. He always has this upset look on his face. Sometimes when he realizes that the camera's on him, then he cracks a smile and tries to look good. But when it first pans on him, he is almost never smiling during a Cowboys game. And when I observed that watching these NFL games, I remember thinking how strange it is that he is probably the richest guy in the stadium every time the Cowboys play, but he is also probably one of the ones that is least able to actually enjoy the game. Why? Because it's not just the game for Jerry Jones. He has literally his entire fortune resting on the success of his team. This guy in the bleachers, whose net worth is probably not even one hundredth of one percent of Jerry Jones's, can go home after a close loss and sleep well with a smile on his face, knowing that he's watched an amazing game, while Jerry Jones stays up at night worrying, is Tony Romo going to carry this franchise? What about Jason Garrett? Did I pick the right coach? When you think about that, you're forced to ask yourself, like the preacher did, who really is the richer person? Who is the one who is really rich in life when you compare these two people? As I was preparing this message, I was thinking about my own journey, living in Africa for five years, and then in this past five years being back in the United States, you know. Um, this is the back porch of our house. And sometimes we would just invite all the village kids to come by for a, quote, movie day. And this was our movie day. It was just, we had no television. We just put a laptop on a stool and then let all the kids gather around on this concrete block and they watch a movie. Life was so simple in those days. It was amazing to me how little money we needed to survive. In Africa, the only bill that I paid every month was the electricity bill. That's it. That's the only bill I paid was the electricity bill. We had no rent. We had no other utilities. Our water came from the river. <laughs> um, but now living in America, paying this mortgage, paying gas and electric and water and sewage and internet and cable and on and on and on. In this last year alone, I've replaced my water heater. I've replaced my garage door opener. I've had to totally redo my downstairs bathroom because of a leaking toilet. And the list of things that I haven't, haven't done yet is even longer than that because we just don't have the money right now to tackle these other projects. And so as the preacher says, the more money you have, the more trouble you have. The preacher gives us a second problem with trying to find happiness in money. In verses 13 to 14, he says, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing 
in his hand. In other words, wealth is too unstable a foundation on which to build your life and your search for happiness. The preacher offers a picture of a person who loses his entire fortune, all of his life savings on one bad business decision. And the message is clear. Don't put your trust in your wealth because it can disappear more quickly than it ever took for you to earn it. I think in life, we all assume that the natural direction of my life is going to be increased wealth, more status, more, more of a richer lifestyle, one promotion after another, one better job opportunity after another. But the truth is that is often not what happens in life. I don't think many of us have planned for that contingency of being in a lower social class later in your life than you were in an earlier point in your life. But I can tell you the testimonies of many people who have experienced that difficulty in their life. And so the teacher, the preacher in essence says, be careful of putting all your hopes in money because that money can disappear in the blink of an eye. But more than headaches that the money can cause, more than the frighteningly easy way that it can be lost, the biggest problem with money and putting your hopes in it is that it can never satisfy our deepest longings, our deepest hungers. In other words, the biggest problem with money is not the external circumstances that happen on us, but the internal battle that is being waged within our own hearts. Speaking of that man who lost all of his savings on one bad business deal, the preacher writes in verses 15 to 17, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. In other words, when he realizes that he has lost everything that he has worked for, his entire life is ruined. It is the devastating picture of a person that is so consumed by this financial loss that he spends the rest of his days eating in darkness, sick with frustration and anger. In other words, the picture that the preacher is painting is of a person that is so consumed and controlled by the power of money that it has utterly destroyed his life. He ends his days in vexation and anger and darkness. In Ecclesiastes 6, 1 through 2, we find these words, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. He, in other words, give us the flip side of the argument and say, let's picture the man who actually has it all, not who lost it all. But here is a guy who has it all. He's acquired the wealth that he's always dreamed of. But he doesn't live to enjoy it. 
Somebody else is the recipient of that joy. Now, what it sounds like the preacher is saying is that he has somehow lost his wealth and ends up having somebody else get that wealth and who now enjoys it. That's sort of what it sounds like he's saying, right? Is that he loses his fortune and now somebody else gets to enjoy it. But that's not really what the preacher is saying because if you read on in verse 3, look at what he says. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. You know, the one thing in the Bible times that trumps money was children. Children. Children were considered the ultimate status symbol. If you bore children, you were a wealthy man. And so what the preacher does is he paints the scenario and he says, let's imagine this guy who has a hundred children, more children than any man can possibly even dream of having, even if you're a polygamist, okay? And yet, here is this guy that has unimaginable wealth, and yet he remains unhappy and unsatisfied with his incredible wealth. He just cannot enjoy it, no matter how much he tries. He describes the scenario as what he calls in the ESV a grievous evil. In other words, a way to translate that would be a sickening, gut-wrenching evil. For a person to have it all and yet not be in a state of mind where he can actually enjoy any of it. Ecclesiastes 6 verse 7 says, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Now, this is a play on words. In essence, what the preacher is saying is, we work so that we can put food on the table and feed ourselves. That's the purpose of work. But then he goes on and says, but there is a deeper hunger that all the money in the world cannot satisfy. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Jonathan Clements writes in an article in the Wall Street Journal about the American dream, we may have life and liberty but the pursuit of happiness isn't going so well. As a country, we are richer than ever. Yet surveys show that Americans are no happier than they were 30 years ago. The key problem, we aren't very good at figuring out what makes us happy. We constantly hanker after fancier cars and fatter paychecks. And initially, such things boost our happiness. But the glow of satisfaction quickly fades. And soon... We are yearning for something else. This is the elusive nature of desire. And it's at work in every one of our hearts. And the wise person is the one that comes to realize this dangerous and destructive power of desire in our lives. During my five years as a missionary in Africa, I went on this personal journey with food. Uh, These different food cravings that at times would be so distracting that I found it difficult to get my work done at times. 
it would just happen like this. I'm just at my desk working on my computer, and the thought of a Chicago-style deep dish pizza comes into my head. And then, I'm not exaggerating here, literally for the next month, I cannot stop thinking about deep dish pizza. And I'm praying about it. I'm asking God to heal me of it and to cast this evil spirit away. And then I would finally realize I had forgotten about deep dish pizza. And then Cheetos would pop into my head. And for weeks, I would obsess over the thought of eating a Cheeto. And then uh, there was this whole, this was probably the longest season, where I was thinking about authentic Mexican food, you know? And having just a solid taco or a burrito or something like that. Um, and the funny thing was, these cravings were always for something that I couldn't get in Kenya. Um, and no matter how much I stuffed myself with the food I had available, these cravings could not be satisfied. They would not go away. But here's the strange thing. Every few years, we would visit the U.S. And the funny thing is, I wouldn't rush out to eat any of this stuff that I was craving for so long because suddenly I could have it. And the desire went away. I didn't want it anymore. That's the goofy thing about desire, isn't it? It has this weird way of taking control of our heart that goes far beyond our needs. Philip Ryken writes, It is no easy task to walk this earth and find peace. Inside of us, it would seem, something is at odds with the very rhythm of things. And we are forever restless, dissatisfied, frustrated, and aching. We are so overcharged with desire that it is hard to come to simple rest. Desire is always stronger than satisfaction. Desire, in other words, has a way of taking a life of its own within our hearts and has a way of controlling us and then ultimately trying to destroy us. Have you had this realization in your own life? Do you know what it's like to chase after cravings but never feel fully satisfied? To always be searching but never finding rest? Derek Kidner writes, If anything is worse than the addiction money brings, it is the emptiness it leaves. Man with eternity in his heart needs better nourishment than this. So the, if the answer is not to be found in money, then where do we find it? What is the answer? Well, at the heart of the answer, we find it in verses 18 to 20. Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. <coughs> Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. And to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now, I want to tell you this. There are some people that read this and have a hard time with this. 
They read it and they argue, this is not what the Bible teaches. This is not what God wants because read the wrong way, what it basically sounds like the preacher is saying is, listen, life's too short and it's a crapshoot. You don't know what's going to happen. It's a coin toss. Life is so random. So what you have is as good as it's going to get. So live it up. Party down. Have a good time. And if you read this last sentence, what it even sounds like the preacher is saying is, and one of the purposes of partying down like this is so that it distracts you, so that you don't have to think about your impending death and your mortality. Um, but I don't think that's what the preacher is actually saying. That's not what he means. Because if you read through the entire book of Ecclesiastes, one of the things you discover is that the preacher actually doesn't make direct reference to God very much at all. But in these short three verses, he references God at least four times. And there's a message here, I think. What he's trying to say is, look, look at it. He's saying, the number of days of your life have been allotted by God. It's your lot in life, what God has assigned to you. No more, nor less. It's determined by God. Whatever wealth and possessions you possess, whatever power you, you have in this life, enjoy them. Why? Because again, they're God-given. God is the one that has given you these things. And He gives them to you as His gifts so that you can actually enjoy them. They are for you. And then lastly, as he says, he gives them to you so that you can experience joy in your life. Because you were put on this earth not to only experience misery and think about your death and think about your mortality. But there is a gift here from God when we recognize and we put it all together, what it seems to be saying is, listen, you don't get to determine the number of days you're given in this life to live. You don't even get to determine your socioeconomic status as much as you think it's all about your achievements. There are much greater forces at work in your life than you. And yet, when I really come to the understanding that God is in control and these are all His gifts to me, then I can actually enjoy these things without worrying so much about all of that stuff that I have no control over. In other words, we can truly enjoy each moment as a gift from God only when we trust that He is in control of our lives. Let me try to illustrate it to you like this. Imagine if you had a, a seven-year-old daughter and you were going to give her this amazing birthday party. And so you reserve the private room in a very nice restaurant and you invite all of her school friends and all the extended relatives, and you decorate the place with centerpieces, and it just looks amazing. And everyone is having a good time, and it's just an incredible feast. The food is just rolling out, one course after another. But you're looking over there at the head of the table, and your daughter is not smiling. In fact, she looks miserable. And so you come up to her and say, honey, what's wrong? What's going on? This birthday party's for you. 
Why aren't you enjoying yourself? And she finally speaks up and she says this to you. Daddy, I am really concerned. I mean, I'm looking at all this stuff and I don't know how you're going to pay for it all. And so I'm trying to eat as little as possible right now just to make sure that when the bill comes, you're going to be able to cover it. Now, how would you feel if your daughter said that to you after you put this birthday party together for her? I think most of us as parents will feel pretty hurt, even offended. You would probably want to respond to your daughter, I don't want you to worry about that. Let me worry about the bill. As your child, your job is to enjoy this party that I've thrown for you and receive it as a gift to you. In the same way, I think what the preacher is saying is we can waste a lot of time worrying about things that are not in our control rather than entrusting our situation to God and believing that He's going to do what's best for us. Now, I'm guessing that some of you are a little bit uncomfortable with what you're hearing from my lips right now because in your heads, you may be wondering this, and it's, I want to address it because you could take everything that I'm saying And what you could be thinking is, boy, it sounds a lot like you're condoning hedonism, you know? In essence, living irresponsibly and even recklessly for pleasure and arguing that, hey, you know what? At the end of the day, God's going to sort it all out. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that all of us should run out after church and max out our credit cards, okay, on wild partying. And assuming, like the parent of an irresponsible teenager, that God is just going to cover the bill and fix our irresponsibility. I'm not arguing for financial irresponsibility. But the point of the analogy is that we can become so consumed with worry about things that are beyond our control that we are unable to enjoy the gifts that God is giving to us. And I think when we're talking about this idea of enjoyment, there's another dimension about this whole dynamic of what I had talked about earlier, this idea of consuming desire, whether it's for food or money or sex. There is this desire that is aroused in us when we enjoy things. And I think the truth is for a lot of us as Christians, we fear that desire. We want nothing to do with that desire, and we do our best to get as far away from it as possible. That desire is evil. It's wrong. Christians, good Christians, should have nothing to do with those kind of pleasures. As H.L. Mencken once said, and I showed you this quote before, Puritanism he defined as that haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy, right? I mean, that's the stereotype of Christianity, right? Is it's killjoys. People who, if you smile, say, you shouldn't be smiling. You think God wants you to be smiling? Nothing to smile about in this life. Carry your cross. Quit smiling. Now, this type of teaching was there from the beginning, even in the early church. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 5, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons 
through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. You see, these false teachers were forbidding Christians from marrying and eating delicious foods. Under that teaching, they were attacking two of the most fundamental pleasures in life, food and sex. And in their way of thinking, a mature Christian is one who could completely eliminate these desires in their life so that you don't need them anymore. In other words, if you were really serious about your faith, if you were really a genuine Christian, then you shouldn't ever have to think about the opposite sex again. And you could eat unflavored oatmeal three meals a day. And the Apostle Paul categorically rejected this teaching, instead arguing that the Christian life is not about rejecting all desire, but it is about submitting that desire to our Lordship of Jesus Christ. And what that means is learning how by faith to receive these things as His good gifts to us and give Him glory for those things and celebrate with joy those things. Now, this is not easy, I acknowledge. And that's why, frankly, a lot of Christians have chosen the other route of saying, I want nothing to do with that stuff. The big question is this, how do we enjoy these pleasures in a way that honors God rather than pulls us away from Him like idolatry does? Well, let me give you a couple guidelines as to what I think the picture is that we're given here in Scripture about these desires. The first is when we do so within the boundaries that He has set for them. Meaning for me to enjoy the pleasures that God has given in His creation as His child means that I enjoy them within the limitations and boundaries and guidelines He has given. For example, sex is good. Sex is a gift of God. It is not evil. But God intended sex to be enjoyed only in the covenant of marriage. We can enjoy our money, but that teaching has to be counterbalanced with also learning how to be sacrificial givers for the work of His kingdom. See, this is what it means to enjoy these things within the boundaries that God has given us. Another guideline we can say about enjoying things in God is this. When we receive them from God with thanksgiving and love. In other words, Rather than using those desires and those pleasures as a substitute for God, I include God in that enjoyment as I thank Him and rejoice in Him and give honor and acknowledgement that these things came to Him, came to me from Him. I mean, imagine if the logic of a husband was like this to his wife. You know, we go on date nights, but whenever we go on date nights, we just go to McDonald's. And the reason is because if I put this amazing steak in front of my wife, then all she's going to think about is the steak, and I want her undivided attention. 
So we sit around a Big Mac and we just gaze into each other's eyes so that I know she's all mine. Isn't there something messed up about a relationship like that? Um, of course, it's possible to go to a restaurant and so engross and engorge yourself in the food that you don't even look at each other and acknowledge each other's presence. But that's not a healthy relationship, is it? A healthy couple can go to a nice restaurant and enjoy a nice steak, but do so in the enjoyment of the company of one another. And I think that's what godly pleasure looks like. The ability to receive the things that God gives us in creation and do so prayerfully, thankfully, in a celebratory way that honors God and says, thank you, Lord, for this. I give you glory, for you are my provider. You are good to me. Another one is this. When we are content with what we have. In Ecclesiastes 6, verse 9, it says, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. In other words, this means that we're satisfied with what's right before us instead of being dissatisfied with what we don't have. And I think this is one of the big distinctions between enjoyment as a materialist and enjoyment as a Christian, is that whether I have little or whether I have much, I thank God for what is right before me, and I can enjoy even this without being dissatisfied or longing for what I don't have. And lastly, it is when we acknowledge that ultimately He alone can satisfy our deepest longing. As we receive these gifts from God, in other words, what we ultimately come to recognize as we give Him thanks and praise Him for it and acknowledge that it all comes from Him is that we grow to love not these gifts, but the giver as the only one that can satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. The great St. Augustine many years ago spoke these words of wisdom when he said, use and enjoy things, but love God. Use and enjoy things, because these are gifts from him, but love God alone. Jeffrey Myers writes, the sin of man is that he ceased to be hungry for God. We have ceased to see our whole lives, everything we consume, as a sacrament of communion with God. The sin of all sins, the truly original sin, is not a transgression of mere rules, but first of all, the deviation of man's love and desire from their proper object, the Lord God himself. At the beginning of my message, I showed you this painting, the moneylender and his wife. But there was a detail in this painting that I didn't really direct your attention to, and it's found right here. What Matzis did was he painted this mirrored glass on the desk where the moneylender and his wife are at work. And if you zoom in on that mirrored glass, this is the image that you see. It's a reflection of a window that's in the shape of a cross. And in this drawing, Matsis did a self-portrait. This is actually Matsis himself that he painted into this picture with one hand reaching out to the cross. And the message of this painter seems to be, 
What is it that ultimately frees us of the love of money? The only answer that we can find is the cross of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Because on that cross, the message is that the true lover of our soul has given the greatest gift of all, his life for ours. And in that gospel message, we find the ultimate salvation from these desires that wage war within our hearts. Let me just close before our worship team comes to sing us out in a couple songs here. From Psalm 73, the words of the psalmist that I think reflect what we're talking about here today. I'm just going to read certain portions of that psalm. And it says this, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. I suppose that nothing that I've really said today is probably earth-shattering news to you. I suppose that this is all probably teaching on money that you've heard before. But the truth is we all need to be reminded, don't we? Because there is the temptation and allure of this world that is so hard to resist. When we look at everyone else who seems to be doing better than us, and it's hard to escape the feeling that money would solve so many of our problems, that it's the gateway to true happiness. But as the preacher says, I've gone on that road, I've traveled on that journey, and I've discovered on top of that mountain that my heart was just as empty as when I began. True wisdom is the ability to look at our life and to be able to say, you know, nothing will ultimately satisfy. And it's the recognition and the wisdom to be able to say, God alone is the one that can satisfy me. A healthy Christian life is not only a life of denial. There is a legitimate place for denial. But you cannot solve your struggle with sin by denial alone, by 
trying to act like you don't have these desires, these cravings in your heart. The way to really deal with these desires is to lay them at the feet of the cross and with the heart of thanksgiving and prayer to receive everything, whether you're going through a time of difficulty or a time of prosperity, to simply receive everything as God's good gift to you and by faith to thank Him for it and to be able to rejoice in it and to acknowledge Him in it. So can I just invite you to pray for a few minutes right now and just maybe pray a prayer like that to the Lord, saying, I don't always see your hand so easily in the circumstances in my life. And not everything that I'm going through always feels like a good gift. But wherever I am in this moment, I just want to thank you and acknowledge you and trust you, recognizing that you are in control of all things and everything comes from your hand. Would you just pray that for a few minutes before we sing these closing songs? Thank you.